Good morning, everybody. How you guys doing today? Man, good to see you. Hey, I want to just thank Pastor Mark. Last week was an awesome message. I had an opportunity to watch the replay. And can we thank him? That was awesome. You know, he, he doesn't ask to get opportunities to speak, but Mark, when, you're, when you do it so well, you're just going to get brought up here more, you know? So you got to like lay an egg sometime if you don't want to work too hard, you know? So good to be with you guys today. Hey, uh, uh, in a couple of weeks on December 10th, we have an opportunity to do something that we call Legacy Offering. And uh, one of the ways that we worship the Lord and one of the ways that we follow Jesus is in our finances. And so all of us as a church, uh, we get an opportunity on December 10th to ask Jesus, just simply, Jesus, what would you have me invest in the kingdom of God and in the work of the kingdom around the world, both locally and globally, in this offering that we call Legacy because we believe that uh, we're not just to like give lip service to making the world a better place and helping others and uh, sending people to go to the mission field and even investing in our local community and different outreaches and things. We do that with every, in all ways. We serve with our time. We serve with our resources. So we do this in December every year. It's called Legacy Offering. There's no pressure. Um, there's no expectation. What the expectation is for you, for me, for our family is just to, to say, Jesus, um, what do you want me to give into this fund? And then we as an eldership team will look at a, a big variety of things. We, we go both locally and globally. So we look at things, uh, different organizations in our city that we have an opportunity to help. One of them being like the Eugene Mission. Um, give a lot to them and really excited to partner with them and the great work they're doing uh, and other uh, organizations locally as well as globally. Uh, Bethany and I on uh, December 31st, I think we'll do our looking back, looking forward service, and we'll, we'll share with you guys some of the awesome projects that we've been able to do this year. But just want to put that on your radar. Uh, just ask that you would pray and say, Jesus, what would you have me give? And then we'll receive that offering on December 10th. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a good thing. Uh, next week, I forgot to mention this in first service, so you're, you're the beneficiaries of this news. Uh, we have an incredible privilege. Um, a couple of months ago, I got uh, connected with a, a guy from India. His name is Augustus Anthony, which is a really cool name, but, but he's called Pastor Tony. And uh, Pastor Tony has uh, plant, planted a church in the 70s and now oversees in the hundreds of churches and over 100,000 Christians in India out of his, just his one church. Um, and he's just a tremendous, incredible, humble leader. Like if you get to hang out with the Apostle Paul or Peter or John or somebody, this is the kind of guy that he is, Okay. He's a true apostle, and he's going to be with us next Sunday. And uh, yeah, so really exciting. So I would encourage you not to miss that. And I would, I would just say, make sure you don't sin this week. Um, <laughs> just get your heart right, you know, because, no, I'm just teasing. But we're going to get to hear from Pastor Anthony. And I know, I know in my bones, it's going to be an encouragement. It's going to be equipping. I had an opportunity to have breakfast with him a couple months ago, and it was like drinking from a fire hydrant of just the presence of the Lord and also just the wisdom that pours out of him. So I'm excited about that. So I'd love to, love to see you here. And we're going to be talking to him about discipleship and how to make disciples. So really, really exciting and a huge honor for us as a church to have Pastor Tony. All right, if I haven't forgotten any other announcements, we're going to jump in today. Um, Pastor Mark kicked off our wisdom series, and I'm excited to jump in on that. But 
we're, we're going to have to interrupt our regularly scheduled programming because if you remember two weeks ago, I started a message about prayer and how prayer defeats worry and anxiety, and I didn't get an opportunity to finish it. So today I'm going to finish that message. So if you want to hear the first part of that, jump back two weeks ago on the, on the YouTube channel there for Joy Eugene, and you can hear the beginning of this. But this has been a message that's in my heart, and I didn't want to leave it um, until some later date. I wanted to get back to it as fast as possible to, to really finish this, because I believe it's tremendously important for where we are as a society and even where we are as church. Um, we live in a hurried and anxious and worried world. Uh, the world is moving incredibly fast all around us. And this is endemic of modern, modernity, that people are living very anxiously. Um, we see this playing out with the amount of prescriptions that are being given and those that are you know, dealing with it in a, in a medic, uh, medical sense. We have therapy and uh, uh, psychology and all of these things. And all of these things are there to help deal with this problem, what I would say a crisis of worry. And then when I read the scripture and I see these bold statements like, don't worry about anything, um, it causes me to go, man, there's something about our faith in the, the Christian faith, not just in a ritual sense or religious sense, but in an actual relationship with Jesus that is tremendously powerful and actually is the answer to the root problem of worry and anxiety. And uh, I started talking about this a couple weeks ago. You can go back and hear the first part, and we're going to finish it today. Prayer versus worry. Are you ready? So Jesus said something in John 14, kind of incredible. He said, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace that I give is a gift the world cannot give. You know, one of the biggest problems that we see in the world and that we see inside ourselves is that we're often looking for something in the wrong place where we're never going to find it. Um, recently, we lost our mailbox key. Has anybody ever gone through this? And it's a nightmare. And we turned our house upside down. We couldn't find it. All I, all I know is that, you know, indisputably Bigfoot took it. That's all I can come to <laughs> with logic and science. But it's gone. And, uh, you know, you always say that the, you find something in the, you always find it in the last place you look, Right. That's supposed to be funny. But anyways, we never found it. Uh, I think many people are on a quest because you're, you're wired for it to, to look for peace. And the peace that's being talked about here by Jesus is not just mental peace, which is peace characterized by truth or the intellect, but it's actually holistic peace because he mentions that it's of the mind and of the heart. You know, one of the things that can happen is you can go, well, everything's going to be okay. And like mentally you can look at things and go, well, I'm probably not going to die in a plane crash. Uh, statistically, I'm not going to get shot um, by a, a, a mass shooting. Um, statistically, I'm not going to die of COVID, you know, but I'm still anxious and my, my insides aren't okay, even though my brain says everything should be fine, right? So Jesus says, look, the kind of peace I give to you is not just the kind of peace that says, don't worry, your statistics are, you have a statistical chance of surviving an airplane, you know? I just got off an airplane a couple nights ago and I, I, I'm worried every time, you know? There's never a time when I'm on the airplane when I'm like, it'll be fine. Because you're hurtling through the sky, right? I don't want to give you new phobias today, but you're basically in a cheap tin can flying 700 miles an hour, 35,000 feet above the ground. And, and I'm glad because I like to go to Mexico and eat tacos, but I'm a little nervous in that process. So statistically, you can go, well, you know, you're safer, you're safer in an airplane than you are in a car. Yeah, but I'm not in control. When I'm in a car, I'm in control, right? At least I feel like I am and I feel better. Anybody else? 
So peace of mind or of the intellect is not the whole thing. There's peace of heart. It's holistic. And Jesus says that only comes from me. So you can have the best therapist, the best prescription, all that stuff, not knocking it, just saying, Jesus says, if you're going to get this kind of peace, it only comes from one place. Paul says in Philippians chapter four, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. So we have this two poles of, uh, of this, two sides of this. On one side is he holds up worry, anxiety. He says, don't do that thing. Don't worry about anything. Well, not about the ducks. Are they going to beat the beavers this week and then beat the huskies? And nope, don't worry about that. Instead, pray about everything. Now, this is interesting because we don't typically see worry and prayer juxtaposed in this way. Um, oftentimes we would look at these things as, as separate categories and we sort of deal with our worry, anxiety on one side and then our prayer life is another. But, but biblically we see them brought together because they, uh, they, they, they need to be offset against each other. Paul says, tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And then you will, not might, not maybe, but will experience God's peace which exceeds anything we can understand. Again, he's describing the same kind of peace that is not just of the statistical variety, intellectual, mental, but actually goes down into where you feel it as well. It touches your emotions. It's holistic. It is the shalom of God. It is the peace, the wellness. It is well with my soul. You will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So prayer is juxtaposed against worry. Prayer is the answer. And a couple weeks ago, I started talking about how Jesus' disciples said, Jesus, will you teach us to pray like you taught John's disciples? And this is what he gives. In Luke chapter 11, we have the shorter version of what we call the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus is asked, how do you have a relationship with God? What are the things you need to say? What are the things you need to think? This is the answer that he gives. And he tells his disciples, this is how you should pray starting in verse two, Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and don't let us yield to temptation. Now, I love this prayer because it's 40 words in the New Living, which I just read and in other translations, it's even less. But it's very simple. It's very concise. But the progression uh, in this prayer and these words and what they represent and what they mean are tremendously powerful. They reorient us from worry into a place of worship. They reorient us from a place of trying to be in control when we really can't be and get us into a place of surrender. And they get us to a place where we say, God, would you change me, not just change circumstances or the world, not just change the things that are outside of my control, but would you bring me to a place of total peace? Shalom, the wellness, the, the goodness from both the intellect and the heart. And so this prayer is so powerful. A couple of weeks ago, I gave the first two. Uh, the Father, may your name be kept holy. The way I pray this is Father, be first in my life. And just to, just to remind what this means, it's talking about that we see that God is ultimate, that he is supreme, that there is no other object of worship or focus that's greater than him. When we begin to pray and we begin to approach God in prayer, what we must do is clear our vision and say, I see you are in a category all by yourself. The way that I pray this is I say, Father, be first in my life. Because until I recognize that God is it, that he is ultimate, supreme, um, then other things can begin to fight against that. And that's where worry and anxiety can live. See, you can't really be worried if you know that God is bigger, better, and grander than everything else, and that's the final say, right? Worry and anxiety cannot live in the light of his glory because they, they pale in comparison. 
So it starts with worship. It starts with getting God first. This is an orientation of the heart. And I will will tell you this, that this prayer is not meant to be some sort of magic formula. What it's meant to do is to get your focus in the right place. So Jesus tells his Jewish disciples, these young Jewish men, Father, may your name be kept holy. And it's saying, let his name be ultimate. Let let him see that way. But I prayed a little bit different. Now I do pray, Father, may your name be kept holy. But I say it this way because it speaks to me. Father, be first in my life. Be first in my my emotions, be first in my focus mentally, be first in my time, be first in my money, be first in my marriage, be first in my family. And when God is first, nothing else gets to be first, right? The second part, Jesus says, let your kingdom come soon. The word kingdom implies a lot of important things. Number one, there is no kingdom without a king. And a king is given ultimate authority And there's a social contract between a king and the citizens of the kingdom or the subjects of that kingdom. The social contract goes like this. If you will give your allegiance totally to this this sovereign, to this king, then you will, in return, receive protection. You will receive provision. You will receive peace that is paid for by the king. So a king sitting on his throne, yeah, you have to serve the king. You have to honor the king. You have to obey the king. But a good king causes the flourishing of his citizens, a good king protects his, his citizens, is not like abusing them, but is instead actually serving them, even though he's in a position of authority. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but the king of the kingdom of heaven is Jesus Christ. And he's a suffering servant. He didn't come to, to uh, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I will pledge myself in allegiance to Jesus Christ who hung on a cross and bled and died for me and took on the shame and the sin that I deserve to, to, to hold on to and to pay for. And he took that for me. That's the kind of king I want to serve. Come on. How many think if we had some leaders in our nation that were maybe a little bit more, even just a little bit more like Jesus, things would be better. And how many of you think it'd be good if your pastor was more like Jesus? Come on. Praise God. Just in case we, so we don't judge other people. Because anytime we model Christ, it's going to get better. Yeah. And so this prayer though, uh, let my, let, I pray it this way, let my world look like your world. And what I'm doing is inviting Jesus to come and sit on the throne of my life. So I'm getting a vision of God, Father be first. And then I'm saying, okay, Jesus come and take control, be in charge. Uh, don't let my version of things be the, the, the thing we go with. Lord, I, I want to live for you. I, I pledge myself to you. I'm, I'm giving my life to you, which means my preferences and my ideas and my agendas all have to come second to the king. But I also get to receive the peace of the kingdom and the provision of the kingdom and the goodness of the kingdom. But I have to accept the king. Amen. So this is the, the kind of the surrender part of the prayer, like not my will, but your will. Uh, and then three, four and five. I'm going to give you these last three parts today. We'll finish this up today by the grace of God. Jesus says, give us today the bread that we need. I'll read it right out of the the scripture here. Give us each day the food we need. Um, This is one of those parts of the prayer that I often will just kind of pray through sort of in a rote fashion, like, and give us today the the bread we need. Uh, Lord, I just pray, you know, bless me, give me more money. Um, I'd like a national championship or a five for the ducks. And, um, you know, just whatever, kind of like move through it. And as often happens, uh, a lot of times the depth and the growth that we experience as Christians is in the things that we are just looking past, that we've just made assumptions about or we think we've got it, right? How many of you know you're usually in the worst place in life when you go, I got it? 
It's like human nature is when we think we have something figured out, I know prayer, I understand it, or I understand the gospel, then like that's when we, we kind of get exposed as a fraud. So I was praying this and I was kind of giving it my, you know, religious prayer. I'll pray through it, whatever. I feel like the Lord said, you know, kind of poked me. Um, like, you're not really doing it right. And I'm like, uh, what? Now, just to be clear, I think when people hear preachers say that God told me something, that you think that we have like a red phone that we pick up and we talk to God. <laughs> I don't. I get like emotions, feelings, senses, right? So just to be clear about this. But I felt the Lord kind of pushed on me. I don't know how to say it different than that. And I realized that I was sort of praying this prayer and it wasn't in line with the rest of this prayer. Um, because I think for, for my prayers, and maybe you relate to this, often my prayer is for God to do something for me and then go away. And here's what I mean. So think about going to a restaurant. We have, uh, you know, restaurants and they're great. I love going out to Red Robin or whatever. And we kind of have an agreement. You know, you have, you as the customer are bringing in hopefully a good attitude, but you're bringing in a good attitude. You're bringing in some money and you're going to do your part. You're going to sit down. You're going to order. You're not going to stay there all day. You know, there's some things you're not allowed to do, right? It's called an all-you-can-eat buffet, but they don't mean it. <laughs> you know, like if it really was, you can't stay there all day. They're going to ask you to go. But you go in, you have a good attitude, you sit down, you order your food. Your waiter or your waitress, they come up and they go, hi, you know, here's my name and, you know, what do you want to eat? And then you order your food and then they leave. They walk away and you go back to hanging out with the people you want to hang out with. Um, as an introvert, if a waiter or waitress came and sat down next to me, I'd be like, you need to go. <laughs> I would actually go. I'm not courageous enough to tell them to go. I just leave. I just slide out under the table. I'd be like... I've actually come down with a terrible case of leprosy. I have to leave right now. You know, I just, but there's this sort of agreement implied that, you know, they're going to, they're going to do their part and they're going to bring your food and they're going to like make like the very bare minimum of chit chat. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, what crazy, it's raining again in Eugene. Like, wow, I didn't understand. I don't get it. But anyways, then they leave. Okay. That's fine. Cause it's a restaurant, but like now think about Thanksgiving. You're going to sit down with your family this Thursday. You're going to have Thanksgiving. And what if your mom comes to the table, she's got all the mashed potatoes and the gravy and all the stuff. And she comes, sits down at the table and you're like, okay, mom, thanks. We'll see you later. <laughs> you're going to get slapped, you know, <laughs> because the idea in a family scenario, though, it's the same thing. Like somebody else made the food, somebody else is serving it to you, whatever, but it's actually a little bit different because it's about relationship and it's about presence and it's about enjoying the feast together. So now let's talk about prayer. Hey God, I'd like you to give me money. And then I like enough money where I don't have to pray for this tomorrow. I, I'd like, I'd like you to heal me because my knee's been hurting. And, and I like, you know, I got a diagnosis I don't like. And if you could just, if you could take care of that, that'd be awesome. And I'd even like tip. Like I would tell people like God healed me. But then God's like, well, yeah, but I actually want to work on your character too. Like, no, no. Well, I want to form Christ in you. Well, I think that happens like through suffering, doesn't it? Well, yeah. So here's what I realized about this prayer. Give us today the food we need is saying, God, would you come and take a larger role in my life? Not a smaller one. Rather than being a waiter who brings my food and gets out of here, would you come and sit at the table and eat with me? 
In fact, could you maybe not like even give me more than I need, but give me enough for today so that tomorrow I get to come and talk to you about it again? And that would actually cause me to have to depend on him. (laughs) And I realized there's a reason why this prayer is this way. It's not saying, God, just empty everything you have and give me like $50 million. Let me just dial this back. I could be fine with 5 million. How about anybody else? You know what I mean? (laughs) I'm not greedy. Just 5 mil, right, in the bank account, diversify, you know. I'd be okay, right? I wouldn't have to think about money anymore or worry about it. Why do I need to worry about it now? Well, you know, if you had five million, you wouldn't have to worry about it. Actually, I know some people that have five million dollars and they still worry about it. Um, because worry isn't about what's in your bank account or what your diagnosis is. It's about where your trust is. Scripture says where your treasure is, there your heart is. And if you're invested in the kingdom of God, your heart's there, like your heart's not going to be anxious. And, and I think, and I know this is true, okay? I think we all do kind of at a, at a base level. There is something in us that wants enough where we don't need God anymore. And this is in all different kinds of things. See, maybe your big fear isn't about bread, about what you're going to eat, your finances. Maybe it's about your health. Maybe it's about if your family's going to be okay. Maybe it's about something else, but there's some anxiety or worry. And really that, that we pray and we're like, provide for me, give me what I need. But we, we want it on our terms. And actually God has a way better and bigger and grander vision for his provision, which is, no, you live with me. You're in the kingdom. So here's what I pray. Provide for me, but don't depart from me. Like God, take care of me. You know what I need. And I'm worried about this. And I, I really, really, really want to beat the Beavers this week and really want to beat the Huskies. I just want to win four games in a row. How many of you know what that would represent for us? Four games. And I would just, I would be a happy man. You know what I mean? A happy duck fan. But then next year I want to win another one, right? Whatever it is. But I'm saying, God, provide for me, but don't depart from me. Come and take a larger role in my life. What if we prayed for the presence of God more than the absence of trouble? What if we said, actually, what's better than a calm storm is a present Christ? What if, what, if, what if actually it's better that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I get to feel the shepherd's rod and his, his, I get to hear Aslan's steps next to me through the darkness? Like, what if, what if that does something a little bit better? Now you go, well, don't we believe in healing? Yeah, we do. Don't we believe in financial miracles? Yes. Well, you're saying don't pray for those? No, absolutely not. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I pray regularly for people to get healed, pray regularly for people, for for resources that I need. Because the point isn't that you don't ask God to intervene, it's that you don't require him to as the basis of your relationship. And then if he doesn't, you say prayer didn't work, he's not real or whatever, because you missed the point completely. The boat sailed off, right? The point is to get you into relationship with him. And like anything, God God is uh, dynamic and he, he does answer prayers. And let me share this with you. Every miracle that we see on this side of eternity is a matter of timing, not a matter of validity. Here's what I mean. I have seen people get healed of cancer, prayed for people, been in church services. Somebody has a cancer diagnosis, terminal. God heals them. How many of you have ever at least heard or seen or been around something like this, where it's like, that's at least 98% undeniable, whatever. I've talked to different pastors and ones. I haven't seen this, but I've heard that, you know, they literally saw someone get raised from the dead. Okay. So when we see supernatural things happen, I've had God provide for me financially, supernaturally. 
we see those things happen. But then, like, we also have a funeral for a dear Christian brother or sister who does die of cancer or has a sickness that they, uh, they pass away from. And we go, well, what's going on? Is this prayer thing broken? Doesn't our pastor have a red hotline to heaven? Like, what's going on? Well, actually, here's what's taking place. Every single Christian in eternity will have healing, complete healing. There will be no cancer. There will be no disease. Death will be no more. It will be defeated once and for all. Do we believe that? So what happens on this side of eternity when we see supernatural miracles, healings, and why we don't always see it is because it's like a solar flare where the sun shoots out that solar flare and we're seeing right now a manifestation of what will be and what's true and what we're moving towards. But it's a matter of timing. And sometimes we have to go, in fact, all the time, God, your will, not mine. And you're in charge of the timeline of these miracles and things taking place. But I'm, I'm praying you into my life. And this, is, this gives us the ability to have a theology that says we will pray for people to be healed right now and we won't give up our faith and lose the ball game when we don't see every time we pray get answered on our timeline because we know we're actually praying for what's coming to happen now, but it's still coming for all of us. It might just take about 70, 80, 90 years. And you go, what do you mean by that? Well, you're all going to be dead in that amount of time. That's what I mean. 90, 100 years. Maybe like if you get like bionics or whatever, 200. I don't know. But what I'm saying is whether Jesus comes back or I get to go be with him when I pass away, I will be healed completely. Come on. But I'm still going to pray today for that provision. But I'm not praying God to provide for me and then get out of here like a waiter. I'm saying, hey, come sit down at the table, provide for me, but don't depart from me. So this is, there's a lot there, but I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. Number four. Uh, Jesus says, forgive us our sins. How many of you go, amen? Because I got a lot of sin to deal with. Uh, and you do too, I know, because I'm your pastor. You know, a lot of sin. Um, one of the things I would say is, if you're feeling guilty of your sin or you're feeling, you know, like, oh, I, I have some sin and I, I need God to forgive me. Did you know that's a sign that you're alive, not dead? Because a dead person doesn't feel pain. So if you actually feel sorrow about your sin, praise God for that, because that's showing you that there's a new life working on the inside of you that actually brings conviction of sin. But be aware that you can't do anything about it in your own strength. You've got to give it to the Lord and continue to ask him for a new heart. Amen? But uh, the, the sign of, you know, feeling bad about your sin is actually a good sign. But, but I have a lot of sin to deal with. And, and this is often where, you know, I go, man, forgive me of my sin. Um, I used to start almost all my prayers with this part. And then I realized that wasn't the right way to do it because you've got to actually see God first before you uh, deal with your sin. But the prayer is really nice if we just say, forgive us our sins. But the problem is that's not actually what Jesus says because he has this really ugly word in there, this word as, which I don't like because it's a qualifying word, right? Like the first part doesn't happen until the second part does. And so this is one of the most ruthless verses in the Bible, okay? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Huh? But they deserve it. They meant it. Yeah, but so did you. So did I. So Jesus teaches us that forgiveness is a two-way street. Here's how I think forgiveness works. I think it works like a valve. It's not a physical valve that I know of, but it's a spiritual valve. And there's a pipeline of forgiveness. And there's the blood of Jesus, like we sang about today, so beautiful, better word, to flow to me and to like take care of all my sins, past, present, 
and future. That's pretty cool. Uh, but Jesus says, actually, that valve needs to be open so that you can't go, well, heaven for me, but hell for you. Because that's what unforgiveness is saying, isn't it? Heaven for me, hell for you, because you deserve it. And it doesn't work that way. Now, I don't know if God's like up in heaven going, well, you know, I'm excited to just like punish people uh, that you didn't forgive or whatever. Um, I don't even know how this works. Maybe it's just literally he can't forgive you because there's something in your heart that has to like shift. Like, the, like I'm talking about this valve. Um, but this is what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter six, in a little bit longer version of the Lord's prayer, he actually exegetes his own words and he tells us exactly what he means. And he says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. That's uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable because there's a lot of people who I think, well, you know, yeah, I've done bad stuff, but they're way worse than me. I've never murdered someone or I've never done that, but this is the deal. Jesus says, if you want to participate in the economy of grace and mercy and forgiveness, then you have to be a full participant. You don't get to pick and choose. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, I know people will hear me hear teaching on forgiveness. They'll go, well, yeah, but I, I've been abused. And does that mean I just need to continue to be abused? No, this doesn't invalidate wisdom. This doesn't invalidate boundaries. Go buy Dr. Henry Cloud's book about boundaries, read it, practice it. But make sure that in your heart, you're not going hell for you, heaven for me. That's what's happening here. That's what we're talking about. There has to be an un, there has to be a release. You don't get to put someone in the prison in your heart where you won't release or forgive them and then walk freely as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't work that way. I don't even know if it's God saying that he won't do it. It could also just be that it's not possible for you to actually receive forgiveness if you aren't a opening the valve type person. Does that make sense? So... When I talk about this, this part here in the prayer, I pray it this way. Lord, forgive me and make me a forgiver. Give me a new heart. Change me into the type of person who is openly ready to forgive, not uh, with clenched hands holding on to what other people do. Okay, number five. The last part of the prayer, Jesus says, and don't let us yield to temptation. Don't let us give in. That word yield is like there's pressure and I give in. The dam breaks and I and I go into uh, temptation. Here's the deal about temptation. Temptation is always a lie or an illusion that is telling us as broken people who are often in pain, which I think is often the, the real source of much of our sin that we do, not that we're just necessarily like evil and out to hurt someone, but as broken people, we break others. As broken people, we break things. We break relationships out of hurt, out of pain, um, temptation tells us a lie. It says, this thing that you're going to give into is going to make it better or it's going to make it easier or it's going to like take you somewhere that's going to be a better place than you are now. And ultimately what is being offered here is that something other than Jesus will make everything okay for you. That something other than Jesus will satisfy your soul. And here's the deal. A lot of my upbringing or th thinking about, not, any, not that anybody did this to me, just how I process things, thinking about temptation was that I needed to get stronger and white knuckle it and be like, anytime I want to do something bad and break the rules, I just need to like, like herk out, hulk out, you know? And how many of you think about temptation like this, you know? Because I don't know about you, but I'm tempted like all the time. 
You're like, well, you're a pastor. Doesn't it not work that way? No. Tempted all the time. Every time I go to a buffet, gluttony is all up on me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Especially down in Mexico, all the shrimp tacos. Come on. Um, and obviously I'm concealing my real sins by saying cheap sins like pride and gluttony that nobody can prove or anything like that. <laughs> but um, just to get real with you, temptation is always saying to my soul, that pain, that hurt, that thing, um, if you'll just give in to this, then you'll be satisfied. And I know that's not true, but I, I, I give in more, right? I keep yielding. And it's not about my strength uh, that's going to change me. Here's, here's why. Humans, you, me, we're not thinking logical beings exclusively. Yes, our ability to like think things through matters. And what we think about matters tremendously. But actually, what kind of causes our behavior in a habitual sense and what causes and drives our behavior in the real deep things of our life are our, uh, our feelings and our gut. You know, we're feeling, loving, you could even say worshiping beings. The kids got a ton of candy at Halloween and I know logically it's bad for me. There's a history of diabetes in my family. I shouldn't eat candy. And when I see a Reese's peanut butter cup, You could bring a PhD to be like, you will die. You are a nearly middle-aged man, a little overweight. You probably shouldn't have this Reese's peanut butter cup. And I'd be like, I'm being led by the spirit. <laughs> so I'd like to think of myself as logical. I'd like to think of myself that if I had the right information, then I'd make better choices. I actually don't think that's the problem. Uh, I think that the problem is the logical mind has a say, but ultimately we will act in accordance with our deepest, truest desires. So I've come to realize that I will eventually always do what I want to do. How about you? I will eventually always do what I want to do. James Smith said this, to be human is to have a heart. You can't not love so the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will, will love as ultimate. And you are what you love. You are what you love because you live toward what you want. So when Jesus says, and pray, don't let me yield to temptation, here's what I, what I pray. God, would you change my heart to want what you want? Because I'm never going to be strong enough to overcome my worshiping heart. See, this is ultimately what it is. Temptation is an is a invitation to worship something other than God is ultimate. Now go back in the prayer and think about all the steps we've taken to get to this part. We've said, I see that you're number one, you're ultimate. God, like I got my, the compass of my life, my worship, my focus is lined up on you. Then I'm inviting you to be the Lord of my life and, and my world, like take ownership. I'm gonna surrender and my allegiance goes to you. Let your kingdom come. Then I'm inviting you to provide for me, but not depart from me. So we're going to walk in relationship. And, the, and as I go through life, like you're with me, I'm not praying you out, I'm praying you in. And then would you change my heart to let forgiveness flow to me as I forgive others? Like I'm participating in a new economy. You know, here's the thing about being forgiven is that forgiven people are the ones who can experience righteousness. If you're still keeping score, you're always going to lose the game. You hear what I'm saying? 
right from the garden was the problem was they started to learn how to keep score. They ate from a tree. What was it called? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Literally, there was like a scorecard that when they did that and disobeyed God, they lost their innocence and now they can keep score with themselves, with God and with other people. And as sinful people, how many of you know, we've already lost the game. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So now you have a scorecard and all you get to do is every day see that you will be a loser every day of your life until eventually you move into an eternity without God. And so this forgiveness thing says, oh, no, no, I actually get to play a different game now. Because Jesus came along and goes, hey, let me, let me take that scorecard, perfect score, here you go. But you don't get to keep score with other people if you receive that one. And so now you're at this place of grace and humility and like you're in a completely different kingdom and a completely different economy of grace and mercy. And now we come to this thing about temptation. And I think the greatest temptation for anybody that's a Christian for more than two weeks is the temptation of virtue, not the temptation of vice. Here's the temptation of vice. Smoke it, eat it, sleep with that person, do crack. I was down in Mexico. You're like, wow, that got weird. Yeah, it'll get... <laughs> I was down in Mexico and we were participating in the sin of gluttony and um, we had just ordered like a mountain of tacos al pastor. Come on, somebody. God's glory right there. Cut right off the thing, you know. I'm sitting there in Cabo and I'm on the strip right there and this guy walks up and he starts talking to me and I'm like, no habla espanol. And he's like, I only speak English. And I was like, okay. And he's like, hey, what do you want? Crack, weed. He said a bunch of stuff I don't even know. It was like, hush puppies, you know. It's like, dude, I'm a Christian. Like, I don't know. I don't even know what that drug is that you're trying to sell me. It freaked me out because I'm sheltered. And I was like, oh. so I immediately text Bethany like, we need to go. So, and I wasn't, but here's the thing. And it's funny, okay? And I'm not making light if you have a substance abuse thing. It's not my poison. I have my own, okay? So I wasn't like, oh, man. Ooh, ooh, cocaine. Ooh. <laughs> To be fair, there was a bag of tacos al pastor next to me. So it was, I had another thing, right? But I, I wasn't tempted by that, honestly, um, because that's just not where I'm at, okay? And I'm not saying I'm like better than anybody else. That's just not where I'm at right now, okay? I'm not saying I couldn't even get to that place. I'm just not there right now. But my goodness, it is so tempting to be like, well, now I'm good enough. I've sort of got this God thing figured out. And as a Christian, like I'm on my way to heaven and I can kind of coast. The temptation of virtue is self-righteousness. So like I'll learn how to pray the right way. I'll learn how to read my Bible the right way. I'll make sure that I'm doing the right stuff. And then I'm good with God and I don't have to grow anymore and continue to, to, to depend on him. So this prayer right here delivers us from both. Temptation of virtue, temptation of vice. Because what it's recognizing is that I am oriented. I want to sin. I don't, I don't, it's not like lust or greed are just these abstract things that every once in a while catch my attention. I'm a lustful, greedy person. I want to win and I want you to lose. And that's not like, oh, well, every once in a while. No, that's actually who I am apart from Christ. And so when we say, don't let me yield to temptation, I say, Lord, change my heart to want what you want. Would you sanctify not my decisions, but my desires? 
Because if the battle is at the level of decision-making, man, I want to smoke it. I want to sleep with that person. I want to watch that thing again. I want to go to this place I shouldn't go. I want to call up that ex, you know, whatever. I, I, I want, I'm going to yield. I'm going to yield. I'm going to yield. Yeah, you are going to yield until your worship drives you to a place where you love God more. And I don't mean out of your ability to love him. I mean where you see him, where you actually want your relationship with God. Does that mean it's easy to resist temptation? No. But I think most sin problems are a worshiping problem, not a behavioral problem. If the heart and the root is changed, the fruit and the behavior changes. I don't want my children to obey me until they turn 18. I think that's stupid. They don't even obey me now. <laughs> not, not like 100% of the time. What I pray for my children is that they would have my law as their father, the, the heart that Bethany and I have for them and their future written on their heart so that when I'm not there and the structure is gone, that the structure of character remains. And if I can say that as an earthly sinful father, how much more a father in heaven? And he wants to, Christ to be formed in us. He wants Jesus' desires. If Jesus was looking at the wrong stuff, would he keep looking at it or would he go, that's actually demeaning an image bearer? If Jesus was presented with drugs that would take away the pain, he would go, my hope is in my father. My relationship is enough. I'm satisfied. Like, do you get what I'm saying? So new heart, new desires, Christ formed in us. So this, this prayer takes us to this place where we go, God, yeah, give me strength. Help me not to yield to temptation. But at the end of this, what really is happening is a new heart. Change my heart to want what you want. Okay. Here's the deal. I could have probably given this message about any topic. We talked about prayer versus worry. And it absolutely beats anxiety and worry, but it beats a whole bunch of other stuff. It's kind of like how some people look at apple cider vinegar. They're like, yep, I have radiation poisoning, apple cider vinegar. <laughs> Somebody cut my head off. Just put some apple cider vinegar on it. <laughs> But if you do that, you come out as a hippie. It's crazy. So, <laughs> but talking about prayer versus worry, prayer and these things we just walked through absolutely displaces worry. Uh, it, it replaces it with worship because it re reorients our, our life, our heart, our focus from fear to faith. But, it, but this, this, is the, this is a way more powerful tool than just against anxiety or worry. Learning to pray and understand what's happening in this prayer that Jesus gives us, I think is a, a transformational, life-changing thing in every way because it gets our heart and focus on him and it ends with us being transformed into the image of, of Christ and actually changing what we want, not just changing, giving us more strength to not do what we actually want to do. It changes our worship to be focused on him. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would let this word find good soil in our hearts and uh, bring forth good fruit. Lord, I pray that uh, you would cause us to grow today, to take away that specific word, whether it's the, the whole message or just one part, uh, to, to grow and to go, man, I'm going I'm to put that into, put that in my filing cabinet. I'm going to begin to live this out. I pray, Lord, that you would draw us in at times of prayer that, Lord, are not based on the words we say, but about these orientations, these, these five sort of postures. Father, be first. Lord, let your kingdom come. Provide for me, don't depart from me. Forgive me as I forgive and change my heart to want what you want. And Lord, I pray that 
uh, we, would, we would let this go in and bring forth good fruit in our lives in Jesus' name. Uh, if you'd bow your head and close your eyes just real quick, we've got to go get the kids out shortly to get to the playground, but I don't want to miss an opportunity to invite you to put your faith and trust in Jesus as your king. There is a kingdom of this world. You know how it's going for you in the kingdom of this world. If you're in sin, you're a slave to sin. Uh, There's another kingdom. It's the one Jesus talked about. It's called the kingdom of heaven. He said the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. You can enter it now. And it just means receiving Jesus as the king of your life, bowing your knee to him and receiving what he did for you at the cross where he paid for your sins, made you right with God. So if you're here today and you say, Pastor Jake, I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus as my king. Would you raise your hand where I can see you? And I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out. I just want to pray with you. Thank you. Awesome. Come on. Awesome. 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 Come on. Anybody else here today? Awesome. Lots of people. Lots of people. So cool. Okay. Pray this prayer with me. We'll give you some next steps to take. Dear Jesus, I give you my life. Thank you for the cross where you paid for my sin and made me right with God. I receive you as my king the Lord of my life, and I receive you as my Savior. I give you my life today in Jesus' name. Amen.